This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, next week, the Fed will be meeting for its last meeting of the year. It's widely anticipated they will be raising interest rates by 50 basis points. But what happens after that? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Jim Bianco from Bianco Research. Jim, let's talk about next week's meeting. If they go 50 basis points, they're going to take the Fed funds rate to four and a half. And at February, I guess it's almost 50-50, whether they go 25 basis points and 50. Where I would like to focus and get your input is in one of the last meetings that Powell had his press conference, he was talking and trying to get people to focus on the terminal rate, and the terminal rate may be higher than the market's anticipating. So let's begin with that. Yeah. So what is the terminal rate? That's just a fancy talk for what rate is the Fed going to end raising and raising rates at. Right now, the market is pricing in 5%. So that means that that's about 100 or maybe 125 basis points away. Next week, the Fed, as you pointed out, is widely expected to raise 50 basis points. Anything other than that would be a surprise at this point. And that gets them to four and a half, and then another 50 basis points to 75 basis points away from where the terminal rate is expected to be. If you look at the way that Wall Street or the markets have priced this in, they do expect the Fed to get to 5%, but they don't expect the Fed to stay there very long. They still have in the second half of the year that the Fed will start cutting rates And by early 2024, the market is pricing in back down to around three and a half. Now, that could be one of two things. That could either be that the market is expecting a recession and a big downturn in the economy, or it is expecting that inflation is indeed transitory and that it will dissipate on its own. And then the Fed can kind of back off. I actually think the market expects a little bit of both. And what if we deviate from that? And I want to move on to something that I don't hear many people talking about, except maybe yourself. And that's what's going on with QT in the repo market. And another issue that's come up, the Fed takes its excess interest it earns, and it's been shoveling in that over to Congress and the Treasury to help balance part of the budget. The Fed is now negative. So let's talk about the implications of that and liquidity for the markets. Yeah. So to explain what the Fed does, the Fed funds rate is not nearly as important as it used to be. So the Fed, they still move the Fed funds rate out of tradition. I mean, it's what people are comfortable with. But in order to make its movements matter, they pay interest on reserves. So a bank, if you're a bank, you have to hold a certain portion of your assets in a reserve account at the Federal Reserve, they'll pay you an interest rate on those reserves. Now, they started this in 2009. And for most of the first 12 years that they did this, or 13 years that they did this, interest rates were zero. So they were paying you an interest on reserves, but there was no interest rate. So they were paying you a very nominal sum of money. Now, fast forward to 2022, after 12 or 13 years of QE, the banking system has trillions of dollars of reserves because the Fed has the ability to add reserves to a bank. Not only do you as a bank have to hold reserves at the Fed, but they could actually stick money into your account by creating it, and that's what they've done. Now that interest rates are rising, the Fed is paying banks a huge sum of money. It could be as much as $10 billion a week. Now, remember, that's not $10 billion to JP Morgan. 
That's $10 billion spread among 4,000 banks or so that we have in the United States. And so what's happened is the interest that the Fed earns on their portfolio, let me back up and throw out another thing too. The Fed has about an $8.5 trillion portfolio of securities, mortgages, and treasuries. The interest that that portfolio throws off after the Fed's done paying for the operations of the Federal Reserve is somewhere between about 80 and $100 billion a year. And they would just remit that money back to the US Treasury, lowering the deficit. Now that they're paying interest on reserves to banks up to near 4%, all that money that they were paying to the Treasury is now being diverted to pay to the banking system because of higher interest rates. So much so that the Fed doesn't have enough money thrown off as interest income from their portfolio to pay for it. So they're probably going to have to print the difference in order to pay up the banks. Now, a couple of things about this. I think a lot of people on Wall Street have been talking about this and suggesting who's going to bail out the bank or the Fed. Is the Fed going to go bankrupt? No, the Fed is not going to go bankrupt. The Fed is never going to need a bailout. The Fed is like the bank in Monopoly. If you read the Monopoly rules, I know this because I've cited so often. Rule 11, the bank never runs out of money. If you have to, in the game of Monopoly, you get little sheets of paper and you write numbers on it like 110 and there you've got enough money for the bank. Well, that's what the Fed is. The Fed will never run out of money. They can always print the money that they need to pay the banking system. There's never going to be a solvency issue there. Is there going to be a confusion and a credibility issue that the Fed is steadfast in fighting inflation, but they're also expanding the amount of money or reserves in the system by printing? Yes, that could be very problematic from a policy standpoint. But I don't think that this idea that the Fed could go bankrupt or that the Fed could wind up needing a bailout, I think that those kind of concerns are misplaced. The Fed has a printing press. You and I don't have a printing press. We can go bankrupt. The Fed will never go bankrupt. And I want to bring, and speaking of interest rates, it's not just the fact that they're not getting this excess interest that the Fed earns shoveled over to Congress to help on the deficit. But let's talk about the deficit because, you know, it's hard to believe at the beginning of the year, we were at 0% interest rates. Jim, I'm looking at one-year treasuries at almost 4.7, two-year treasury note at 4.3. So we've got Unlike consumers and corporations, when interest rates got down to zero, consumers refinanced their mortgages, corporations refinanced their debt. The government didn't do that. They were issuing short-term treasuries. They weren't paying anything. What about the impact on the deficit of interest? I think we're tracking now at close to over $700 billion in interest. Let's talk about that. Yeah. The Treasury or the U.S. government has issued about $31 trillion worth of debt. And in any given year, the net rollover of the debt, debt matures, they reissue new debt, about $2 trillion a year or so. And you're right that the number that, that is quoted is that the interest on debt is around $700, $600 billion. Uh, that number historically as a percent of GDP is actually pretty average right now. That's nothing unusual. Well, wait a minute, interest rates are going up, and that means that they're going to have to pay more in interest costs over several years. Because like I said, only about 2 trillion of the 31 trillion gets refinanced every year. If you issued a 10-year note two years ago, and it had a coupon of 1%, you're still going to pay that. You know, The treasury's only going to have to pay 1% on that debt for another eight years before it matures, and then they have to issue another bond to replace it. So in the thinking of the Fed, and I tend to agree with this, if interest rates go up 2022, 2023, 2024, is that going to leave the 
Treasury in a difficult position of paying higher interest costs. They will pay higher interest costs, but nothing deleterious. It starts bleeding into 25, 26, 27 that you still have higher interest rates. Then the cumulative of that can really start to add up. But what we've done so far in raising rates has had a negligible effect, the interest costs that we've seen. It will take years with an S on the end of that word in order for it to build up to be a problem. I don't expect it to be a problem in 2023 or maybe even in 2024. Well, let's move on to why the Fed's doing this. We're seeing inflation, the highest level we've seen in four decades. And Jim, there was a a report published by Research Affiliates, and it basically says anytime you get the inflation rate above 8%, which we did, reverting back to 3% usually takes 6 to 20 years with a medium of 10 years. What's your perspective on inflation? I don't think it's transitory as Wall Street thinks it is. Let me take the second part first. Wall Street not only thinks it's transitory, but a year ago, almost a year ago to the day we're talking, Jay Powell gave a speech in front of Congress and said, it's time to retire the word transitory. We never retired the word transitory. It became Voldemort, the word you're not allowed to say, but everybody still believes it. And we still think that inflation is going to dissipate. It's going to go away. The supply chain is going to get fixed. Gasoline prices are down. Used car prices have rolled over. Whatever the excuse of the moment is, we still believe that inflation is going to be transitory and it's going to go away. But the research affiliate study, which I've read, I largely agree with, is usually says that when you get inflation above 8%, it doesn't do that for just because it did. There's usually secular forces at play. And I've argued that those secular forces are the end of cheap labor and cheap energy. And taking those real quick one at a time, the end of cheap labor We have a very tight labor market right now. We have still under 4% unemployment. We have wage growth still running above 5%. So the average person in the United States is getting a raise of about 5% a year. And part of the reason that this is happening, a week before we were recording here, Jay Powell spoke at the Brookings Institute, and he brought up an interesting statistic. He said, there are two and a half million people that are excess retired. Now that's fancy Fed talk for two and a half million people more retired and left the workforce than than demographics would have expected. Why did so many extra people retire? He gave two reasons. Reason one was long COVID, that there's a lot of people, especially older people that are health compromised, that are worried about being being in a job where they have to intermingle with a lot of other people and that they could get COVID. Okay, that's a legitimate concern, no problem. And that makes a lot of sense. But the second reason he gave, flat out said, the rise in the stock and housing markets has made people so wealthy that they've essentially quit. And so we have got a lot of people that have left the workforce because they made so much money in 21 and 20. And we mailed out so much money. They felt like they don't need to be in the workforce anymore. So they excess retired, to use the Fed's term. So we are at a labor shortage right now. That's not going to go away next year. That's not going to go away with a recession. And that's going to take a while. Cheap goods. No less than the head of Taiwan Semiconductor the day before we are recording was in Arizona with President Biden to break ground on a new semiconductor plant that they're building, first one in 20 years in the United States. Taiwan Semiconductor is the largest semiconductor producer in the world. And in his 
prepared remarks, he said that pretty much we are at the end of globalization right now. And that's one of the reasons why they're building a semiconductor plant in Arizona and willing to build semis in the United States, fully acknowledging it's going to be more money. They're going to be more expensive here than they would be to build them in Indonesia or Taiwan or China or wherever else we build them. But because we're near the end of globalization, that is a reality. So the end of cheap goods, if we're near the end of globalization, is going to keep the inflation rate high. And cheap energy, cheap energy could just be summarized by Russia. Russia is the largest energy producer all in, natural gas, crude oil, everything else, all in producer in the world. They have shut off the Nord Stream pipelines to Europe. Europe has got much higher energy costs than they did just a year ago. The expectation is that that's not going to be fixed next year, that somehow there's going to be a peace deal with Ukraine and Russia is going to go back to shipping energy to Europe. So we're at the end of cheap energy. So if we're at the end of cheap labor, we're at the end of cheap goods, we're at the end of cheap energy, fits right in with what research affiliates said. Yeah, you get the inflation rate over 8%. There's secular forces at play. It's not going to go back to 2% in 18 months. As you pointed out, it could take 6 to 20 years with the average being 10. We need to change the secular outlook of the economy to get inflation under control. Now, that doesn't mean we stay at 8%. One of the things I've liked to say to people is I'm also in the camp that 9.1% on inflation back in the spring was probably the peak, or as I like to say, it better be the peak or we're in a world of trouble. But that is not an important statistic to point out, that we've hit peak inflation at 9%. How fast is it going to go to two? Because if it takes six or eight years to go to two, that's a problem. If it stops at 4%, and that's kind of where I'm at with my thinking that, yes, it's on its way down from nine, it's now in the high sevens, it's going back to four, and then it kind of stops there. What does that mean? Well, that means the Fed, the way that Jay Paulus expressed this, they believe that the neutral funds rate is half a percent above the inflation rate. That means neutral interest rates are four and a half. That means they're they're just going to get to neutral next week if it stops at four. They have not been tight at all. And Jay Powell says that ultimately to bring inflation down, they'll have to go tight, which means they're going to have to go well above four and a half percent for a longer period of time. So yeah, I agree with that. Inflation is more secular than people think. It's not just this artifact of reopening the economy in a supply chain constraint. And once we fix that, it goes away. It's much more complicated than that. It could take years to go away. Yes, 9% may very well be the peak. But if we go back down to four, that is still problematic. And, you know, let's take this back now to the stock market. Once again, Wall Street focusing on the pivot. And let's say the Fed goes in February, instead of 50 basis points, they do a quarter basis points. Wall Street could see that as bullish. You know, you have two scenarios out there right now. I'm thinking of JP Morgan that says it's going to be a hard landing, a hard recession. And you got Bank of America that's saying it's a mild recession. Given what you see happening with the interest rates, what's going on in the economy, because Jimmy, you take a look at S&P earnings, back out the energy companies, and they don't look that good. Yes. But you know, to the first part of what you said, there's two scenarios on Wall Street. There's a recession with the capital R and there's a recession with small r. But everybody is of the opinion there is going to be a recession. Also, I might add, they're of the opinion that there will be a big rise in the unemployment rate, maybe as much as 4.5% from 3.7, which is where it is now by the end of the year. And for those not steeped in labor economics, that is a big rise to see the unemployment rate rise that much in a year. They're also expecting that S&P earnings 
even including all of those energy companies that you pointed out. If you go on an after-inflation basis, Wall Street now has the worst forecast, worst outlook in 40 years of data. We started measuring consensus on earnings in the 1980s, and it's never been as bad as this. And they're expecting 6% earnings growth for next year, but they're also expecting 5% inflation. So that means 1% after inflation, that 1% after inflation would be the lowest after inflation number in 40 years. And I'll throw out one other statistic at you. Bloomberg has been surveying Wall Street strategists since 1999. So this will be the 24th year, 2023. And this is the first year that the median estimate is the stock market will fall in price next year. Even in 2008, when the world was coming apart, they thought the next year's stock prices would be higher. Even in 2001, right after 9-11, they thought that the next year's stock prices would be higher, including 2000 after the tech bubble. They thought the next year would be higher. This is the first year in 24 years they think it's going to be lower. So we've got this very, very pessimistic outlook from Wall Street. Now, normally on Wall Street, if you're that pessimistic, you get fired because you're not allowed to be pessimistic. You're supposed to pump sunshine and seashells and balloons and tell everybody it's all okay. But why is it that they're so pessimistic? And let me give you a right turn on the answer, because that is the optimistic answer. Because what Wall Street needs more than anything else is the Fed to pivot. It needs cheaper money. It needs them to cut rates. Last month, we saw a 5% rally in the stock market, S&P, on the day of the CPI report. And that is an enormous, one of the biggest rallies we've seen in the last decade because inflation missed. It came in below expectations and it gave hope for the idea that the Fed would pivot. This week, the week we're recording, the stock market fell 4% Monday through Wednesday, solely on a Nick Timmeros story in the Wall Street Journal that the Fed might keep raising rates. So yeah, I mean, you can spend your time looking at earnings and management and product and positioning and the state of the economy and the labor market, and all Wall Street wants to make prices go up is cheap money. And if that takes a recession and lousy earnings and a fall in the stock market in the first half of the year to get the Fed to realize they have to cut rates, then we can have a rally in the second half of the year as well. So we're in this unbelievable position that if you're a stock picker and you pick companies because you think that those companies will earn a profit, will hire more workers because they're doing well, and God forbid, they might actually have to raise their price because people demand their product. That's a disaster for Wall Street next year. What you want is to pick good companies and hope they go to hell, that they have lousy earnings, that they fire people, and that they have to cut the price of their product to get people to buy it because then the Fed will ease and their stock price will actually go up. This is what 15 years of QE and Fed puts and negative interest rates and forward guidance it's turned the market into a liquidity junkie. It just wants cheap money. And that's what I think is behind all of these forecasts of recession and terrible earnings. They're looking, that's the bull story. It's going to be bad. And the Fed will then cut and we'll have cheap money and then it will be good. So what is your risk? You got two risks here. Risk one, it isn't bad. It isn't bad that there isn't a recession. There isn't a big rise of unemployment. There isn't terrible earnings. Then the Fed will raise rates to five. They will never cut rates. And they might even keep raising rates later in 23 if that happens. Your other scenario is it's the capital R recession that Jamie Dimon talked about. 
that it will be so bad that even cheap money won't save you. But if we get the small R Bank of America recession, just enough to get the Fed to realize they made a mistake and start cutting rates, that's the bull scenario. So yes, we live in an upside down world now where the bullish story is we're going to have a recession next year. Outside of this scenario, one of the things that you have talked about you wouldn't be surprised if next year we see some kind of crisis develop. You know, when you're raising rates, somebody's caught on the wrong side of a trade, somebody's over leveraged, you've got zombie companies. What is the possibility that we have some kind of black swan event like that? Very high. I mean, the old adage on Wall Street is the Fed raises rates until something breaks. And that's also part of that recession forecast, too, is that there's some kind of anticipation of something breaking. Okay, so what's going to break? I like to say that the bond market is too opaque, too big, and too complicated for me or Jamie Dimon or Dave Solomon or Goldman Sachs or anywhere in between to say that little corner over there in the bond market or that little corner over there in the funding markets, they're going to have a big problem with interest rates going up or interest rates moving or something. We don't know. It's too big, too complicated, and too opaque. But what we do know is when you subject a market to these level of losses and this level of volatility and measures of volatility in the bond market are extraordinarily high, and measures of liquidity in the bond market are extraordinarily poor. When you put that cocktail together, you can expect that there will be some kind of a problem somewhere. We saw the beginnings of that in the UK a couple of months ago when their liability-driven investing strategies for pension plans blew up, and we saw that their 30-year gilt rose in yield almost 100 basis points in one day. They've been trading 30-year gilts in the UK for over 230 years, and they've never had a day like that. And that was just a couple of months ago. I'm not saying we're going to see a 100 basis point move in our market. I don't know what it's going to be. But what that does tell me is there's a lot of stress in the markets right now. It's right below the surface, and it hasn't yet shown its ugly face, but there's a possibility that it could. And again, Wall Street likes to spin this into a bullish story. Oh, good somebody's going to blow up and that where the Fed's going to pivot and then the markets can rally. And the problem with that argument is what they're trying to say is somebody else is going to blow up, not me, you, you're going to blow up and then the Fed's going to ease and I'm going to enjoy higher prices. That's why they got so excited about UK pensions having problems a few months ago because Wall Street looked around and goes, none of us are in UK pensions. Okay, great. They have a problem and the Fed will ease and we'll enjoy higher stock prices because of it. Well, typically, when something breaks, it's something I own that breaks. It's something you own that breaks. And we suffer because of that breakage. But it is wishful thinking to think it's going to be nothing that I own breaks, and it's going to be something that somebody else owns, and therefore, I will then enjoy the Fed pivot afterwards. Market is a liquidity junkie, and it does things that sometimes don't make sense on the face of it. But when you start to understand what is the driver of it, it does start to make sense. Well, let's talk about something that may lead to maybe the Bank of America outcome, which is a small R. And Jim, when the Biden administration came in, they passed, I don't know, what's it, 1.9 trillion. So if you take all of this stimulus that's coming on the fiscal side, I think it's like four and a half trillion. How much of that is keeping this economy afloat? Because they're spending that money. They're injecting it into the economy. How much of that is helping and maybe mitigate the big R? I think a lot of it is helping in keeping the economy afloat. 
to some degree. And that's why you've seen in a lot of the data that even though everybody keeps talking about a slowdown, the economy is going to suffer, to date, it really hasn't. Yes, there are exceptions, the big one being the housing market, but that's such an interest rate sensitive market that you can understand why housing or real estate written large is having such a big issue. But beyond that, you really haven't seen a lot of it. And it's also having a consequence when it comes to Fed policy. We have somewhere around on core inflation, if you use the measure of core inflation, we have somewhere around 6% or so of core inflation right now. The San Francisco Fed and the New York Federal Reserve done studies where they try to break down what causes that 6% core inflation. Well, 1% of that is ambiguous. They're not sure. So 1% of that inflation is ambiguous. But of the other five, they say it's about equally spaced between supply constraints and excess demand. So 2.5% of the 6% inflation is because we have huge deficits, we have huge fiscal spending. We had a bunch of stimulus over the last couple of years, and we've had up until just the last several months, extraordinarily easy monetary policy. The old Milton Friedman dictum, too much money chasing too few goods. That's 2.5% of the 6% number. The other 2.5% is supply chain constraints, whether it's energy or it's container ships or it's zero COVID and China, which is true, becoming an unreliable manufacturer right now because they're more complaining and protesting than they are making stuff. That is the other 2.5%. Wall Street wants you to think that all the inflation is about a supply chain constraint. It's half. It's still significant. It's half. But there's another half, which is all of that excess demand, excess money, all from all the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus. And that is going to stick around for a while too. And it's another reason, going back to the research affiliates thing, I think that the inflation rate, while it peaked and it might be coming down, it isn't going to go all the way to 2%. 2% would imply all the excess demand is gone from the system and all of the supply chain problems are fixed. We're two and a half years past the almost approaching three years since the beginning of COVID. We're not close to any of that happening right now. And that's not months away from happening if it does, getting rid of the excess demand, completely fixing the supply chain. It's been three years and we're not close to it. It's probably going to be years again before we finally get all of that kind of rectified. You know, one of the biggest macro events I think that we're going to be facing in this decade and you know, people like Peter Zion have talked about that is this reverse globalization. We were talking earlier about Taiwan Semiconductor building a chip plant in Phoenix. It's going to be more expensive to build stuff here than in China. But, you know, where else are we going to go? Because we learned with COVID, the problems that you have from drugs to manufacturing, if it's all in one place and that place is in lockdown, you've got problems. Yeah, it is. You know, and if we are now starting to worry about comparative advantage, I mean, that's the reason we built certain things and or manufacture certain things in certain places because they have comparative advantage, either close to natural resources or cheap labor sources or, you know, access to transportation or whatever it happens to be. If we can't rely on that anymore, and we have to now make sure that everything is in a politically secure, and politically is the important word, secure place, then we're going to have a real problem. China, Apple had a problem at their big iPhone factory, and that they had some protests, they had some rioting, people got injured on the factory floor. And the word now is that Apple is now going to pull the plug and move its manufacturing of iPhones out of China. Now, the problem with that is it's going to take them 10 years to do it. 
And it's going to take them a lot of money in order to do it. Now, where are they going to go? The word is that they're looking at either India or Vietnam. Okay. India and Vietnam today in late 2022 appear to be very politically stable places. But when you're done moving to either India or Vietnam or both in 10 years, will they still be politically stable? What was China thought of as 10 years ago? Very politically stable. What is China thought of now? Not politically stable. So when you start looking around and you say, okay, where can I be sure that my manufacturing process will be politically stable and not give me any problems in 10 or 20 years, then you're down to United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and not many other first world countries. But what is the problem with manufacturing in all those countries? It's more expensive. That's the reason that we don't manufacture in those countries right now. And so if we're going to reshore, and that is what Taiwan Semi seems to be suggesting, and even with the chairman saying the end of globalization, it also means things are going to be more expensive and that they're going to be more expensive over the long term. And by the way, bearing in mind too, that when it comes to manufacturing, a lot of people are thinking it's more expensive because people get paid more in the United States than they do in China. That's true. But the biggest input to manufacturing anything is energy. You need cheap energy in order to manufacture something. The United States has the ability to have cheap energy. We've got big energy fields in Eagle Forth in Texas and the Bakken field in North Dakota and lots of other places in between the Marshalls Ferret in Pennsylvania as well. So we've got it. We've got offshore energy sources in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of California. If we want to issue permits to exploit that cheap energy, we could go a long way to mitigating the cost of manufacturing in the United States. But we don't want to do that. The environmental, the ESG movement is too strong for people to want to bucket and say, look, it's really more important that we have cheap, reliable energy. Europe is learning this. What was it that gave Europe any kind of competitive advantage in manufacturing? They were getting cheap energy, especially in the form of natural gas, from Russia. It was just coming in and that's been turned off. And now Europe is faced with much higher energy costs. And manufacturing processes in Europe are closing by the day because it doesn't matter what you pay your employees, especially if you're building a car, like if you're building a Mercedes in Stuttgart or you're building in a BMW in Bavaria, it doesn't matter what you're paying the line workers to build that car. If you can't get cheap energy, and it takes a lot of energy to build a car, you can't be productive. And so that's really the advantage. So yes, we could reshore and it's going to be more expensive. We could offset that by saying we need to liberalize our energy rules in order to lower the cost of energy in the United States so that those manufacturing processes are less expensive. But then that would require us to roll back some ESG and environmental rules. And those are just non-starters right now in the psyche of the American public. Let's get back to something that we were talking about, some of these macro inflationary trends. We don't have cheap labor. We don't have cheap energy. And, you know, in my own state of California, Jim, we are going to shut our last nuclear power plant down to 2030. They've extended it to then. We've already shut down one, but we're not building new plants. And so this last summer, when we had heat waves, you had the governor coming out and saying, hey, if you got an EV, don't charge it between nine in the morning and eight at night, because we just don't have the grid capacity to handle that. So, you know, it seems to me that 
policy is in some ways going to be driving these higher costs by simply limiting cheap energy or the ability to produce it. You know, when you point that out, going back to our previous conversation, how could Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, possibly turn to somebody like Taiwan Semiconductor and say, hey, you thought about putting your fab plant in California? Because the reaction is going to be, you just told people that they can't use energy from nine till nine or nine till eight during the day. We have to be somewhere where we have 24-7, 365, uninterrupted energy, no exceptions. And apparently California cannot make that promise. So there can't be any real manufacturing expansion in California because that's what you need at a minimum to even consider locating a manufacturing facility. So when the reshoring comes, it isn't going to go to California. Now, I know California is really, you could answer this better than me, it's really two states, right? It's people that live within 15 miles of the coast, the Pacific coast, and then there's the Inland Empire. And everybody thinks, no, I don't want to put a manufacturing facility overlooking the Pacific Ocean. No, that was never the case. It was going to be in the Inland Empire, but you can't even do it there because you can't be sure that you have a cheap, uninterrupted source of energy in order to have any kind of manufacturing process. Well, the irony of all of this, Arizona, and especially around the Phoenix area, has two nuclear power plants, and some of that excess energy we're importing into California. So it's no wonder you've got Apple, Intel, Taiwan Semiconductor going to Phoenix, where the energy is going to be more reliable, where you're having more companies leave California for this very thing that we're talking about. That's right. And the thing about energy, too, is people have a misperception of energy. You know, when you say, oh, yeah, we need more oil drilling, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe not people listening to us, a lot of people will have this image of like a hundred year old Derek spewing oil off the top of it, and it's very messy and it's dirty and stuff. I've had the fortune of actually being on an oil platform, taking a tour of an oil platform several years ago, and I've studied the oil industry. This industry is as high tech and is as clean as a hospital. You go and see some of these facilities, there's no mess there. This stuff costs $80 a barrel. They don't want to spill it all over the floor. They want it to basically go into the pipe and they want it to go out and they want to get paid on it. So a lot of these facilities, you know, this was the whole Anwar argument from many years ago when they wanted to put an oil facility in the in the Wildlife National Preserve. It was going to be the size of a golf course in the entire state of Alaska, which is half the continental United States. And somehow everybody thought that that was going to poison the entire state of Alaska. No, this this facility was going to be so clean you could eat off the floor. That's the way energy is in 2022. But getting that argument out and getting that argument across to people that the production of energy, the use of energy is much, much cleaner than we've ever saw it. And then the perversion of it is, well, we can't do it because it's dirty. But then we look the other way. You know, the Biden administration says, well, we can't expand permits in the United States to make energy reliable in the United States. But then they're willing to give on sanctions to Venezuela in order to get them to ramp up production. Venezuela is a socialist country that's somewhat backward. Their oil production facilities do look like those oil derricks from 100 years ago. They are messy. They are corrupt. They are prone to leakage. They are prone to enormous environmental disasters. But you'd be better off doing it here under the environmental rules that we have, as opposed to just turning your back and saying, you do it over there so that we could just keep our hands clean. So we have a long way to go before we start to really understand the importance of energy and how energy is going to play into this as we move forward. 
getting rid of manufacturing in China is something that seems inevitable right now. And if it comes here, if we don't change our attitudes about energy, like I said before, it's just going to cost everybody more for everything because it can be cheaper here, but we're just not ready to do it. Let's talk about what this means for investing, because I don't care if you're looking at copper inventory, silver, you're looking at oil itself. I'm looking at my Bloomberg now, some of the lowest levels that we've seen in inventory in the energy space. If we're not willing to correct that, and we've got these higher energy prices, which energy translates into higher cost no matter what. To produce it, manufacturers need it. You have to put it on a truck. You have to get it to a store. What does this mean for investors? As it looks like inflation might have peaked, but it may be with us a lot longer. What does that mean for investors? We're very bullish on commodities. Yes. And you could see that in commodities too, because let me start with energy. You've got a very interesting divergence going on right now with energy. If you look at the price of natural gas in the United States, or if you look at the price of WTI, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, it's been sliding. If you look at the average price of gasoline, you know, a gallon of gas at the pump in the United States, it just hit $3.33 a gallon today, the day we're recording, December 31st of 2021, the end of last year was 334. So it just went negative on the year. So if you look at the price of energy, you'd say, man, it's going down. It's looking terrible. There must be way too much of this stuff, or there must be much reduced demand. Now you look at the investments. If you look at the energy stocks through the roof, they're going straight up right now, huge gains on those stocks. The market is forward-looking the market is looking past what you're seeing in these energy companies, in the energy prices, and saying there's a supply and demand imbalance right now, and that is only going to worsen. Big driver of that supply and demand imbalance is zero COVID in China has locked down or partially locked down their economy. The estimates that is taking 2 million barrels a day of demand off because China people can't do anything except sit in their house. But eventually, by the middle of next year, zero COVID should be a thing of the past, and that will then increase demand for energy. And that's why the oil stocks are, are zooming higher in anticipation of that. But drawing that bigger, if we are in a period that where the commodity markets are going to be higher, inflation is going to be stickier, interest rates are going to be higher, that's going to be problematic for growth stocks. And you see that with the way that the NASDAQ has underperformed, the way that Technologies further underperformed, and the way that unprofitable technologies, the kind of stocks that the ARC fund might buy, have been among the worst performers, maybe down 60% year to date. Most of those companies, to use a fancy term, are long duration assets. They don't make money now. They're expected to make money somewhere in the future, especially unprofitable technology companies. So the cash flows that you would expect from those companies are way off in the future. So when interest rates go up and you start discounting those cash flows, they get hurt really bad. You take a company like Procter & Gamble, or you take a company like Exxon, they're making money now. Exxon's making a tremendous amount of money now. Exxon, today we're recording again, was a, a headline out that they reported record earnings and are giving every employee of that firm a 9% raise, even above the inflation rate. They've made so much money. Well, when you discount their cash flows because they're making money and a lot of it now, they're not so much hurt. 
by the rise of interest rates. So what that's a fancy way of saying is the environment we're going forward from here, it's going to be about making money now, not making money in the future. That means growth stocks are not going to do as well. It's going to be about value stocks being preferred. And within the value stock sector, I think things that are more tangible, like the commodity producers, are going to be favored. Even if the prices are struggling now, the prices of the commodities are struggling now, the stocks are not because they're saying, I understand why they're struggling now. But as we look forward into 23 and 24, they think that their outlooks are very bright. And I tend to agree with that. So as an investor, as we conclude here, you know, we're going to be heading into the year's ending. And as we said, we've got Wall Street focusing on a pivot and we've got other things going on that are highly inflationary. And I could almost see, Jim, at some point where the Fed says, well, the 2% inflation rate may not be realistic. Maybe we need to look at a 3 to 4% inflation rate. They could do that, and they very well might do that. But the thing they have to be careful of is they've had a 2% target on inflation now since 2012 for 10 years. That's when they officially adopted the target. And they've never hit it. And so now they're going to change it to 3 They're going to have a credibility problem. I've jokingly said that's like me being a middle-aged businessman, if I used told me to high jump seven feet and I tried and I came up maybe four feet under the bar and then I got up from the pit and I said, okay, I know what the problem is. Raise the bar to eight feet. That'll make it more <laughs> likely that I'm going to do it. That's essentially what the Fed is trying to say. Here's the 2% target. We've never hit that target. Oh, we need to change the target. Well, why don't you try and hit that target first to show that you have any credibility before you raise it? So yes, I do think that there will be a discussion in 23 that the Fed should raise the target. But why should we believe any of this? They have no credibility with this target right now. They were never able to hold anything to the 2% target in the first place. So why should we believe that that solves the problem? They could do it, but I don't think it solves the problem. For whatever it's worth, Jay Powell's been asked this question, would you raise the target? And he keeps shaking his head and going, no, it's not under consideration at all. And I think that's because they know that it would strike at their credibility. They got to, first of all, hit the target that they've initially established before they start tweaking it. So given this, as we head into the new year, as an investor, Jim, what would you be telling people to do? Maybe keep some powder dry, maybe get a little bit of defensive. You know, we like value stocks, we like dividend stocks, we like commodities. What would you be advising people? Oh, I like all of that. That's music to my ears. I would also tell people that you know, if you start looking at short-term interest rates right now, as you pointed out, the one-year bills at 4.7%, the two-year notes at about 4.4%. I think that the inflation rate over the longer term can settle out at around 4%. You could at least cover inflation with no risk. I'm not saying 100% of your money should be in short-term interest rates with those yields, but you can say by grabbing those yields, that as we move forward with the inflation rate coming down, but not to 2%, I could cover my inflation risk right there and with no risk. And that would give me a little bit of a chance to take some more risk. And yes, I agree that this is an environment of value stocks, energy stocks, high dividend paying stocks. Again, those are short duration stocks because they're paying you the dividend now. They're not like Zoom and they're maybe they're going to pay the dividend in 28 years when they finally figure out how to make money. They're going to pay it now. So the dividend stocks now. So I like those type of things. And yes, I think commodities are going to be in demand. I think energy is going to be in demand because part of globalization is also going to eventually 
drag us into energy too. It's not just going to be, well, we're going to have to get the semiconductor manufacturing out of China and back to the United States. Eventually, it's also going to be, do we need to find a replacement for OPEC in Saudi Arabia? We have it here if we wanted to do it. But you know, eventually, we might be forced to do that, but we're just not ready to even think about that option right now. So that makes it very optimistic going forward on the energy sector that that could be another play as well. You know, I've just a final question. I've read about commodity cycles. In the first phase of a commodity cycle, the smart money gets in, they see it. In phase two, it's institutional, and they come in after three years of consistent profits. So that's phase two. Phase three, individuals come in and they start buying and bidding things up almost to bubble like. And phase four is policy changes. So the government finally says, you know what? We got to start drilling here. We got to start building nuclear plants or something to bring down the cost of the energy. Do you subscribe to that cycle? Yeah. I mean, it also sounds like the crypto market too. <laughs> I would say that we're probably at phase one when it comes to the energy cycle. We're at phase four, at the end of phase four, the crypto market right now, because we're at the policy point with crypto. But yes, I do. And I do think that that's where we're at. It's interesting what's happening with these markets and how much of a surprise this is taking people. There's a big Geneva, Switzerland-based oil trader called Trafigura. They trade on average of around 7 million barrels a day of oil. Huge oil trader. They're privately owned, so a lot of people have not heard of them. Glencore would be one of their competitors, but their Glencore is publicly traded, and you've probably heard of them. Back in March, Trafigura was squeezed real bad during the beginning of the Ukraine war, and they were caught and they reached out to a bunch of private equity firms, Blackstone, and just to name one of many, looking to raise more capital. These firms came in, looked at their books, and they all passed. And they all said, I think this business is troubled. Well, that was March. Here we are in December. Trafigura just reported, not only did they make record profits this year, they made more money than the last five years combined this year. That's stage one. That's stage one of what we're talking about. Not even the Blackstones and the institutions, even nine months ago, one of the touch companies that were on the precipice of record earnings. Well, what's going to be stage two now when they see all the record earnings? Institutions are going to come into this market. Then retail is going to come into this market. And you're right, stage four will be then the policy will follow. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, you write some of the best research and stuff I read. I always look forward to reading your stuff. How can our listeners find out more about the work that you do? Well, we are an institutional research firm, so we provide our research to institutions. That said, there's nothing to stop you from requesting a free trial on our website at biancoresearch.com. But to augment that, I am very active on social media. Twitter is my preferred place, at Bianco Research. I might warn everybody that look for the one with the blue check mark with a lot of followers, you know, well over a few hundred thousand because there's a lot of people that impersonate me and you don't want to get to the wrong one. I will never ask you for money on Twitter. So if somebody does, that's somebody impersonating me. Neilan needs to fix that. Or on LinkedIn, at Jim Bianco on LinkedIn is another place you can follow me. Well, I tell you, if you're not an institution, go there. Because really, Jim, you put out some high quality stuff and I want to compliment you on it. Thank you. All right. Well, listen, you have yourself a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope to talk to you again next year. Yes, same to you, too. Thank you. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.